Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest has been both a litigant and a judge on our legal thriller bonus episodes. He's here to make his triumphant main feed debut. It's Laundry Dan from the Five Day Rentals podcast. How you doing, buddy? Good, George. Thanks for having me, man. Absolutely my pleasure. This has been a long time in the making. The other two boys have been here, but we're saving... The best for last, of course, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Take that. <laughs> I'm very excited to talk about today's movie, but before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror in general? Well, George, I was born Midwest trailer trash, so <laughs> I have a lot of cousins, so naturally I married one of them. No, that's a joke. <laughs> um, I did have a lot of cousins, though. Um, we did live in the same town that my grandparents were from. So my mom, whenever she needed a break, she would drop us off at the old grandparents' house. And, of course, you rent movies and order pizza whenever you're there. Of course. So they were older cousins. So these guys are bringing home Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street, a little bit of pumpkin head, mm. child's play. Sure. The classics, you know. So uh, I got exposed to those probably at a way too early age. <laughs> but... I think that's how I kind of got well-rounded in it. Friday the 13th, I think, was I was my favorite for a long time when I was a kid. So, But I seen those guys joking and saying, oh, man, this is great. And I figured, eh, I guess maybe you shouldn't be scared of it. I, I don't ever remember <laughs> being scared. So, Yeah, lucky. But, <laughs> yeah, and then I think if I told my mom, she'd probably get pissed off. So I kind of kept it on the DL so I could continue to watch all that fantastic horror there hell yeah i mean you listed a bunch of slashers there do you have a favorite subgenre and has that evolved as you have grown up i think if i'm interested i'm gonna watch it i don't really i don't know i do make new year's resolutions film wise every year and this year i really want to tap into more italian horror oh nice so but i don't think i have a specific genre that I really, really like. I mean, I like the slow burn. I don't want to get into the elevated horror argument that <laughs> whatever's going on these days. But uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't. I don't think I have a favorite. I, I mean, I always enjoy a good slasher. You there you go. You can't go wrong with that. Sure, sure. I also I think that's a great resolution just in general. I, I my whole thing is resolutions need to be achievable and measurable. And so for me, it's like. My New Year's resolution this year is watch all of the physical media that I own but haven't seen yet. And it's like, all right, I can put those on their own shelf, work my way through it, and then be done with it at the end of the year. And so exploring a specific subgenre as as a resolution, I think that's great. That's a great idea. Yeah, I try to do like two or three. I think movies of the 70s is another one that I'm really going to try to hit on non-horror related. Nice, nice. Well, the movie we're talking about today is David Fincher's Zodiac from 2007. I see the poster hanging up behind you as we speak. This is a true gem. Do you remember where you just like into the Zodiac before this movie came out? It did this was this just like a movie that sh that grabbed you right away? Oh, I was a Finch head. I I still am. So, Hell yeah. you know, I think Panic Room was the last he had before this one. So it was a, a drought there for a little bit with old Finchy. Of course, Seven and Fight Club. I love the game as well. So yeah, when this was coming down, I was like, holy shit, he's going back to serial killers. Like, fucking Seven Two. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, I was there. I think we went opening weekend. I think 
Bones was there with me, I believe. Oh, nice. For, uh, for this one. So, yeah. Hell yeah. It, I mean, look, Fincher, he's great. Panic Room was also the best horror movie ever made previously. Yeah, I so, it's, uh, he, he, he certainly has his, his style. And that's definitely part of what I love about this movie. I'll talk about it as we go through. But I'm generally not a true crime guy. And I'm curious to hear what your sort of opinion is on true crime in general, because, um, it's not really to my taste. And so for this movie to not only have been good, but for me to be like, oh, yeah, it's fucking great. I genuinely love this movie. And it sort of breaks through that distaste that I have. It's I think it really is something special. Well, my wife dries her hair in the morning as she's getting ready and listens to a true crime like podcast nowadays, mm-hmm. which back when even 2007, you didn't have 42 billion true crime podcasts. True. Which I, <laughs> I guess we can't say that we got 42 billion movie podcasts as well out there. <laughs> but we know, too, they're all the greatest. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think he does a wonderful job here of making it about, I mean, really, it's just about guys and conversations and mm-hmm. letters i mean yeah i think i mean we'll get more into that once we get into the plot but uh yeah the i don't ever remember it at this time being as crazy i know there's people always into of course like the jfk assassination and yeah. and zodiac was a big one i uh when I went through college, I did a lot of I had a lot of electives to fill, so I did a lot of the criminal justice classes. So oh, I would just push Zodiac into those type of classes just to get those credits. But um, sure. I was never. I mean, I got the books. I read the books, but I think it was this movie that really kind of sparked my interest. I think a lot. If you do some research on a lot of those sleuths out there today, that this was their main point to get into Zodiac. Yeah, it's kind of like the Graysmith book for a new generation in a way. Yeah, and I think I think when you look at it as a whole, if you can, because there's a million other rabbit holes you can go down with Zodiac, Robert Graysmith's material for old Finchie to do was probably the best bubble to stay in for the movie to make a, a presentable movie, I would say. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, my, uh, my mom loved true crime stuff uh growing up there was a lot of <clears throat> the the first 48 and uh yeah. cold case files and stuff on the tv so i think i just got like way burned out on it even <laughs> like even back then and then this I, I think that part of what it does is that my my real favorite genre of all time is looking at files and nobody does Details. it better than mark ruffalo <laughs> and this is that movie with just like a spice of horror added to it as well. It, it is a looking at files movie at its core instead of, you know, like reveling in the violence as much. It's it's about these investigators. Yeah, and it feels you're sitting you're almost in the room with them like you feel like you're at the table when they're passing this first letter around and you're like, "Oh shit, like <laughs> yeah. this is awesome, you know?" Yeah. So, Fincher spent his childhood in the Bay Area where he both had George Lucas as a neighbor and witnessed the Zodiac era in real time. And they asked him if his memory of the area was different than it was looking back at photos, and Fincher said, "It was pretty much as I remembered it." The one thing that changed was my understanding of the Zodiac case, which was based on a seven-year-old's memory. As a kid, I always thought the Zodiac's body count was much higher, and there was this huge manhunt to find this guy. It turns out, it was two guys with these rotary phones and big pens. 
even when they were telling us on television that they were going through computer files comparing fingerprints, the reality was that the technology didn't exist in any truly useful format until later. The 70s was a little bit of a technological backwater. They didn't have fax machines, and we wanted to talk about that. Not to harp on it, but to remind people that these times were more primitive. And I think that that is really interesting, sort of the challenges that they're facing just in terms of sharing information and being able to collaborate in a meaningful way. George, I mean, this might have been one of the biggest issues of why the Zodiac was never caught. They just didn't share information. There's a a very funny, like, John Mulaney bit about like how easy it was to get away with murder before DNA testing, where they would walk into a room filled with the killer's blood and be like, hmm, gross, get this out of here. (laughs) His first encounter with the Zodiac was at seven, when one day he noticed the highway patrol was escorting his bus back home from school, and he asked his dad about it, and Jack Fincher, who was a Life magazine journalist and author, said, oh, that's right, There's a guy who murdered four people, and he sent a letter to the newspaper threatening to shoot out the tires of a school bus and kill the children on it. And Fincher laughed about it, and he said, I remember for the first time really wondering whether my parents were competent to take care of children. (laughs) It'd be all right. (laughs) Rub some dirt on it. (laughs) But the incident did stay with him, and it persuaded him to read the Vanderbilt adaptation of Graysmith's best-selling books on the killings Zodiac and Zodiac Unmasked. And his, he said that his natural instinct had been to avoid going back to serial killer material. Like you said, you know, he made seven. And when he said he was interested, Vanderbilt was floored. And he said, I've done a serial killer movie. I'm not interested in repeating myself. I see something closer to all the president's men. It's a newspaper story. And that was what Vanderbilt was like. Oh, he gets it. Snore alert. <laughs> but it's not, guys. But it's not. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, Vanderbilt was definitely obsessed from what I read and tried multiple times to to see where the rights were for the book and even contacted Graysmith to say that, hey, I I can't promise that this is ever going to come to light, but we're going to fucking try. And uh, I think I got two things that Touchstone had it or Disney had it. I wasn't I wasn't sure if maybe you seen any of that as well. Yeah. Isn't doesn't Disney own Touchstone? Aren't they like an arm? I I think that they're an arm. I so I ultimately reached out more. <laughs> ultimately, the uh, the mouse had it, which is feels like a weird, weird inf- um, place for it. But yeah, Touchstone is their more like adult okay. distribution arm. So uh, that does make, I guess, more sense than here because I had just heard Disney. <laughs> so I was like, that's bizarre. And that newspaper element is exactly what I like about it. Fincher wanted to get beyond the horror and the hype to the reality of the killings and the effect that it had on those who investigated them. And he said he was specifically influenced by funny games and the purposely upsetting and straightforward violence. And that's why, despite not being present in the adapted books, Graysmith is such a focus of the movie. They bring him in as a character to show this obsession and the spiral and the way that it's impacting the people around him as well, these ripple effects. And it's it's interesting to hear him say that funny games influenced him because I famously, well, maybe not famously on here, but because I declared it the best horror movie ever made. But my real opinion is that I don't I don't like funny games. I don't need Haneke to think to say that he's better than me and that like when Fulci says that we're disgusting perverts, that's like, oh, because you are also a disgusting pervert. But when Haneke says it, it feels insulting. And um, so for this to take sort of the elements of it and to show 
the impact of media on violence and the way that people interact with it. That's fascinating to me because there are I like the the theory of funny games, I think, has some interesting elements to it. I just don't like the execution of it, the heavy handedness that he that he uses. But this brings those elements in in a more palatable way to me. Yeah, funny games is all right. I never understood the hype, but um, well, that's a different argument. <laughs> I do agree with you on the media. This was at this time Zodiac was kind of the first taste of that serial killer media obsession. Yeah, because as Zodiac goes on, which is the seventies, Charles Manson comes in, and which is even more of a fucking media shitstorm. So, yeah, I agree with you there that this was kind of maybe America's obsession with it. Yeah, absolutely. And Fincher said he wanted it to be simple. Here it is. It's right here. A guy comes in and goes, I'm going to tie you up, get on your stomach, and all of a sudden you're fucked. Um, Regarding true crime, Fincher was asked by the Oregonian, Zodiac is a story about real people who were brutally murdered or wounded and who are either still around or still have families alive. Do you feel an obligation to the survivors and relatives? And Fincher said, yes. You know, we could have made this movie without ever having interviewed anybody. And we didn't want to do that. We wanted to get the real story, and we wanted them to know that we didn't just want to depict their anonymous suffering as victim number four. We wanted to know what really happened and the fallout from it. I feel a responsibility to that. When you're portraying people's real lives, you owe them the responsibility and dignity of telling them what you're going to do and then sticking to that. My reputation aside, I really don't set out to offend anybody, and especially not people who've suffered. And I think that that delicate touch is what is missing in a lot of uh, a, a true crime media in general is just the they're not thinking about the way that these people are still dealing with the ramifications and the long lasting impact and and to e- exploit it into content feels different than this the way that this is telling the victims stories to me. Yeah, they put up a little thing at the beginning of the podcast that says, with all due respect for the families and the victims, and then I guess they feel they're doing something for it because they're doing a show about it, I guess, maybe. Right. But yeah, I agree. I think I think Fincher, I think he respectful. For the point that Brian uh, Hartnell from the Lake Berry SM, well, Cecilia there got murdered, he was on set the whole time for his, his own scene at Lake Berryessa. He was there saying... These are the details. I mean, that's insane that he would actually go back. It recreated it so effectively that when he actually saw it put together, he was like crying and like, this was awful to watch because it's so real. And that shows you that the respect that old Finchie had for the subject. And I think he came in and saying, hey, if I can't use the real names of these people, I'm not going to do this movie. I think that's a shout back to uh, Graysmith. Graysmith disguised uh, Arthur Lee Allen's name in his book, so... He didn't actually name Arthur Lee Allen. Yeah, and they had to balance these details with creating an entertaining movie. Fincher said it's walking the line. Ken Narlow was there on the day we shot the stabbings when they walked out of the trailer, and he couldn't watch. He said, they look so much like them. I forgot how young they were. Oh, my God. So Fincher has all of this stuff going on. But yeah, like we said, Jamie Vanderbilt was talking with Robert Graysmith this whole time because uh, he revealed that Disney had let the rights lapse and that they were he was going to be taking like an auction basically or bids for this uh, the rights to this book and 
they wanted Fincher from the word go, but assumed he would pass on it. And we're like, okay, let's send it to him so we can get down to business and find out who's actually going to direct, <laughs> which was pretty funny. But Fincher loved it. And he told them, my hat's off to you guys for taking this massive amount of information and putting it all into this 158-page document. Now let's put the script in a drawer, go up to the Bay Area, and meet every single person who was involved in this investigation. And they did. 18 months. 18 months. Incredible. That's so much prep time. Interviewing witnesses, detectives, surviving victims. Fisher, the producer, hired a private investigator to track down Mike Majot, who survived being shot by the Zodiac, and since has been like kind of dislocated. He spent a lot of time unhoused. And when Fincher interviewed him, uh, he was in jail in Las Vegas. And he said it was important because you get a clearer sense for yourself of whether you feel like they're full of shit. And we didn't get a feeling he was full of shit. That's why it's important to talk to these people to really get a sense of if they're being honest or not. If he couldn't talk to somebody that was there, it wasn't going into the movie. So Right. Everything in the script needed to be verified. Police reports were studied. Urban legends were cut. The Zodiac killings crossed jurisdictions and provided bureaucratic nightmares for the investigating. And researching the film actually did highlight evidence that had been previously ignored or forgotten. And interviewers or interviewees, he said, were more receptive to Hollywood than to the law. And as Finchie said, making a movie is a lot friendlier than being the Department of Justice's eighth investigator in 35 years. Yeah. Hey, plus, like, who's playing me? (laughs) 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 David also wanted to go even more in depth than the movie we got. And he said, well, making movies is hard. It takes a long time. And we reshot a lot of stuff. And some of it's better and some of it's not. We had to play around with it and do some test screenings and with the intent of assuaging everyone's fears. And we didn't. So then you go through the whole rigmarole of let's see what the movie actually is. And we did that for six months. And I got it to the shape that it has now. We reached a concession point. I wasn't going to make it any shorter. And they weren't going to let me make it any longer. (laughs) So it's where it should be. There was some stuff in the original cut that I would have loved to have seen in the final cut, but they just wouldn't sit still for it. There's an entire scene, which this is in the version that I watched, the director's cut, and it is a great scene. But he says there's this entire scene where the cops run down some district attorney with the case against Arthur Lee Allen. And I just love it because it's so Charlie's Angels, just three guys talking to a speakerphone. But the audience was like, you're kidding, right? Five minutes of guys talking to a speakerphone. Well, the audience spoke and the audience said no. But it shows you the process you have to go through to get just a search warrant for this guy. Not only that, but it's there's so much disparate information that's being collected that having a moment to sit down and be like, here's what we know. Let's re-catch everyone up, see what the case is so far, I think is helpful to us as an audience, especially if you're someone who's not familiar with the case. Yeah, it took a whole month to even get to that point after the interrogation at Arthur Lee Allen's factory or wherever he was working. Right. The movie follows our main trio of Paul Avery, the reporter, David Toskey, the cop, and Robert Graysmith, cartooner and uh, independent investigator. <laughs> and <Nerd>. David, yeah. <laughs> David says he sees pieces of himself in each of them. They're all sort of pieces of who I am. Avery, the pro, says things like, this guy killed only five people. More people die every year in the East Bay commute. He's the tortured realist. He'd love to get involved and get broken up about stuff, but he doesn't. And then Toski, who thinks you have to let things go. And Graysmith is the compulsive part of my personality. 
And it's interesting for him to feel that connection with these with these gentlemen, I think helps to bring that Fincher touch into it to make it feel like a more personal movie and more connected to him. I did read, I think Fincher had some of Graysmith's cartoons cut out in his childhood. He used to collect uh, a lot of the cartoons from the newspapers. So he said, yeah, I actually have some of his that I collected. So I thought that was pretty cool. Avery is played by Robert Downey Jr., Toski by Mark Ruffalo, and Graysmith by Jake Gyllenhaal. It is funny to read interviews, and they're all miserable about how many takes Fincher demanded, but also like, ugh, I hate to say that he's right, but... (laughs) In the end... Yeah, there was some, uh, I know famously, Hamp and Gyllenhaal did not get along, so. That's right. That's right. But he cast him directly as a result of his excellent performance in Donnie Darko, (laughs) which he was right to do. Great movie. (laughs) Some of the other great performances, though, that come through the movie are Charles Fleischer in his second best horror movie ever made, funnily enough, um, considering he's more known as the voice of Roger Rabbit, and he plays Bob Vaughn here. You also have Chloe, uh, Chloe Savini, Chloe Savini, dude, I fuck this name up every single time. (laughs) Chloe Savini. I'm not going to hate on you, George. (laughs) (laughs) You've listened to my show, shit. (laughs) Chloe Savini is Melanie. She's great. And that's not an easy role to stop from slipping into caricature. I think that it really demands a very nuanced performance that she does manage. A lot of th- I've read a lot that said that that's just a throwaway performance and a waste of a good actress. And I was like, I don't think that the way that she handles that is so like a real relationship of, oh, fuck, my wife's like, you got a podcast? Like, sh- <laughs> I might come home one day and she might be gone, guys. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Went to mom's, took the kids, don't yeah. call. <laughs> and I, I, that very first intro scene, which I mean, we'll get into it, but it's just so incredible where she's like, kind of suspicious of him and then like you see their interactions as he gets more and more nervous and scrambling for the change and everything it's it's just a great dynamic between them she's like i can take this dork (laughs) (laughs) and of course tony edwards as bill armstrong the beating heart of the movie as people dive further and further into the zodiac investigation uh as you said the true hero of this story and brian cox just rips every fucking scene he's in up oh yeah he is great as well yeah as uh melvin belli <laughs> they put a lot of effort into not only creating an accurate script but creating a period accurate look as well they said we would always try and find anything that was real reality is good enough for me and that's what we did what would the outside of this character's house look like well we got some pictures and we knew between the truth and something that was beautiful we opted to go with the truth our other mantra was Let's make sure that we don't do a pastiche. It's one thing to do an homage, but I didn't want to make a movie about sideburns. I wanted it to be a movie about people, and I wanted it to be about the 70s in San Francisco that I knew growing up. So when in doubt, I would reference old photos and go like, yeah, that's about how many Volkswagen bugs you'd see on the street, so that's what we'll do. And hippies. (laughs) And hippies, for sure. It is highly digital. There's a lot of recreating the period that way just because of feasibility. You just can't get that many cars is one example on a surface level. But also the appeal of digital filmmaking is that you don't have to take as long between setups and you can try more things, experiment and tweak the performances until they're just right without sending them back to hair and makeup every time. And with the already uh, strenuous demands of Fincher's uh, perfectionism here, if they had to also go back and get all the blood off of the, the outfits every time as well, 
it's just not realistic. Yeah, I think they had three hours for the lighting for Lake Berryessa. So. Right. <laughs> Stylistically, the movie is also kind of considered a departure for Fincher. He's kind of notorious for envelope-pushing camera work and supposedly in-your-face aesthetic. And it is kind of simple relative to it. You get some two shots, some cuts. It's more of a stable camera. And some people are like, oh, this is him maturing. And I, I don't think that he was immature to begin with. I think that it's just he knows to use the right tools for the job. The the frame rattling of Fight Club matches the anarchy and aggression. The elaborate tracking through Panic Room helps to establish the claustrophobia of being trapped in there. For this, maybe it's a little matter-of-fact and focused on the people, but that's where the story is. That's the impact of using the camera, and that's why he's such a great director. Well, yeah, and in some cases, I think for Paul Stein's murder at Washington and Cherry, they do the overhead of the cab. They're mm -hmm. like, we don't know if they had a conversation. We don't know if he just sat in silence. So that's kind of why they chose to go that route. So Yeah, that's right. And and occasionally it does get a little more naturalistic, a little more shaky. And it does help to make you feel unnerved and uneasy at those points. It had an estimated $85 million budget. It made $84.7 million at the box office. So close. So close. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> I could have got the sequel. Yep. So, yeah, too. Dude, I, I laughed so hard in the commentary when they were like, hopefully we meet back here for, <laughs> for Zodiac 2. <laughs> if you want to have a good time with a commentary for Zodiac, yeah, watch the actor and uh, – Actors one in Elroy, I think, is on there. The producer yeah. in Vanderbilt. That, yeah, it's just like hanging out with the guys. Yeah, for sure. It's a fun one. And there was a really funny quote from Total Film about the reception that this movie got when it came out. And it said, Steven Soderbergh thinks Zodiac is Fincher's best film. James Elroy claims it's one of the greatest crime movies ever made. John Travolta's feeble farce Wild Hogs beats it to number one at the box office. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> and Fincher said, obviously, there's no way they're going to put up a poster which doesn't talk about Seven. But if you want bad word of mouth, you make people think that this is like Seven. And I think that he's exactly right, that this is a very different movie from that, even though they have uh, perhaps tangentially related content. They really feel like two whole and different movies. Oh, he does a very... I wouldn't say quick, but you get those murders out of the way so you can get into the proceeding or the procedural work that is going to happen. So mm. sit down because you're about to look at a lot of paperwork. That's right. That's right. So let's get into the actual movie now. Starts off with the older studio logos, sets the analog scene, very fun. And then you get this great view of Vallejo at night. It's the 4th of July in 1969, fireworks in the distance with signs of life on the bridge. The buildings are lit up. It's a very vibrant scene, which makes the following all the more terrifying. You cruise through this neighborhood. You're looking through the passenger window. Your immediate instinct, or at least my immediate instinct from the detached view, is that they've put you in the shoes of the killer. And this forced identification is what horror can do so well. So it's a shock when a teen boy runs out and it's revealed that we've just been his girlfriend the whole time. It's a good little uh, side flipper there. Yeah, yeah, I liked it. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, it is a crazy shot. They turn the car itself basically into a dolly and pushed it down the road with the camera stabilized inside, which I mean, talk about putting the work in physically. Yeah. You know, Finchie wasn't pushing that car, though. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man, he might. He might. I'll ride on hood, guys. Yeah. <laughs> they go to make out point where their performances are very funny. He does seem to just not be getting the signals, although he does scream fuck off and die at some goons, which really makes me laugh. <laughs> they do drive by Mr. Ed's here first, and she does a, it's a fine actress here, but you can tell that something is not right. You, mm-hmm. you just you can tell. But I will say that that is a good little clue right in there. Yeah, for sure. Up front. Definitely. And they're interrupted by a car pulling up behind them and looming and then driving away. D seems to know who it is, but tells this guy not to worry about it. It's nothing. Tires screech and the car returns, blocking them in. Someone gets out of the car and without seeing them, quietly shoots the couple. It's awful. Hurdy-gurdy man is playing. The blood splatter, the abruptness, and the viciousness. I mean, maybe a bad time to bring up how great the soundtrack is, but it's a great soundtrack. (laughs) It really is. It really is. And the boy manages to climb out of the car. We hear the Zodiac calling in his own crime very clinically before it turns taunting. Goodbye. (laughs) And that's another thing I want to praise. I like that he didn't have a dedicated Zodiac call in every time that he did it. It was through a reporter or through another actor or something whenever he did do that stuff. So yeah, hats off to that. And just having different people play the Zodiac in these scenes, you know, uh, is a great way to keep you off balance, not knowing who it is or who it's meant to represent. Well, in each description from the people that actually seen this man, it was always different. So, and that's what he wanted to play on as well. True. And this is indicated in the movie, although subtly, apparently Mike was wearing an insane amount of layers for 4th of July in California, like three pairs of pants and four sweaters or something like that, which is part of why he survived. And it's just like they literally sewed a bunch of sweater collars in the exact right position to to literally represent them, even if they're like, well, we can't really diverge to talk about this weird rabbit hole of why was this guy wearing so much clothes? Yeah, there's the sleuths out there definitely think the theories are that he knew what was going to happen that night and stuff like that. That kind of goes back to that. I think he was just wanted to be a little more bulky. He's a skinny little guy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Trying to look good. Yeah. Four weeks later, we're in San Francisco. This approach is great and also completely digital, which is a challenge because it's so bright and well lit. But they wanted to contrast the terror of the night. And I think that they do a great job. It's a beautiful shot. Things are hectic as Graysmith, single father, rushes his son to school. You get a great sense of him in this scene, a lot of impressive characterization done quickly, his absent-mindedness, his sort of relaxed vibe as a dad, his cartooning. It's all built in very quickly. I think they do a great job there. George, are you on for Gyllenhaal's performance here? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I I love Jake Gyllenhaal. I think that he is one of our best working actors, and... I think that this is absolutely demonstrative of him being able to knock it out of the park. You know, he, it's a subtle performance, I think, in that it's very naturalistic because they're playing real people. And if it was anything larger, then it would feel like a caricature. Okay, because there's some stuff out there that are like, eh, everything's great except for Jill and all. I'm like, I disagree. Boo. Boo to that. <laughs> 
He works at the San Francisco Chronicle as their cartoonist. Some really great cutting mixed with longer dolly shots as he heads in, makes his way to a meeting. You can also see the letter from the Zodiac making its way through the mailroom and to the editor in the same meeting Robert is in, along with Paul on the crime beat. Yeah, we're fo- we're following this plot just right up to where it needs to go. Boom. Exactly. Both converging trails bring us right in. And David talked a lot uh, about the importance of this letter. It's the main hook, not only in the story, but in reality. The idea that you're getting this look inside how he views himself and the evolution along with the voyeurism of their graphic nature. You know, this is what makes the Zodiac unique, his calling card. And so for it to be represented in a way that is interesting in these movie in this movie and not just like okay here's a sheet of paper is is delicate i think yeah i think fincher did say that the letters were a character of their own like and i felt they had to be shown in great detail and look exactly how they were supposed to and i think it it fucking works absolutely and the letter states some facts only the zodiac and the police know then demands they print this third of the cipher along with two other papers with the other two thirds by August or he'll go on a killing rampage. And they debate running the cipher while Paul confirms the killings and that the other papers got letters. So it gets published on the front page as requested. And this is the big thing is, is the newspaper not condoning necessarily, but exploiting this in a way that uh, encourages not only the Zodiac, but people like him who are interested in that attention. It's a very complicated situation, obviously, and one I don't have an answer for, but um, it's an interesting question. I will say, I think they do a good job of the tug of war of should we, maybe this is, what is this, pretty much. I mean, I know that was for the Chronicle. I know the Examiner at the time was having some rough uh, rough business opportunities there. So I think they he was kind of saying that the examiner like loved Zodiac because it would actually got them people buying papers, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, like you said, it could go either way with that. Right. And as Paul Avery says later in the movie, it's good business for everyone except you, you know. The uh, Robert also copied the cipher so he has a copy of it at the same time the skaggs island naval intelligence center is working on cracking it then later the fbi then later the cia then later two elderly people in their breakfast nook reading the morning paper over coffee and they decide to give it a go very funny transition and i really enjoy this uh, sort of dry humor here yeah two days for the teachers to crack the codes um and also all the material all the pins and everything that Robert's using or Gyllenhaal is, is actually Robert Graysmith's stuff that he used at the examiner at that time. Wow. He gave it to him to do that. He also mentioned that some of Gyllenhaal's cartoons weren't that terrible. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. We're now three days later. We're back at the Chronicle. Turns out that they cracked it. But as Robert predicted, the Zodiac didn't give his name. Paul is kind of intrigued by him. But he gets called into editorial because they got another letter. And this is now the first time that he refers to himself as the Zodiac. You jump a month and a half ahead. It's a beautiful day in Napa until a couple's parkside retreat is interrupted by the Zodiac. Great line here where he's, uh, or the woman says, I think he's watching us. And the guy says, well, we're very good looking. <laughs> Maybe he's taking a leak. 
Yeah. It's pretty freaky as she like narrates his approach while the dude is unconcerned. Instead of just be, like walking or watching a guy walk up, having her tell us what's happening is much scarier. Oh yeah. And this is the this is the dress up as well, so. That's right. And Fincher also talked about the way that they digitally inserted like blades of grass here at the bottom of the camera frame to give it that voyeuristic feeling and that is the level of detail that he is bringing to it to to I mean, it, it's so easy to just be like, that doesn't matter. No one's going to care. Like, that doesn't really do anything. But it is those little details that make you feel like you're there. I mean, he is there, George. He flew in two fucking trees with That's helicopters. Fincher's right. the man. That's right. They had to replant trees that had been knocked over by the weather at that uh, at that location. That's crazy that they even let him like, okay, <laughs> I can do that, I guess. <laughs> Hey, it's a win for them, too. They get two yeah. trees. He kills them after the dude offers to write him a check, or he tries to, which you got to laugh at this check offer. But the laughter fades quickly as the Zodiac forces the girl to tie the guy up and then ties her up and then stabs them a bunch. Uh, particularly brutal because it seems like it might be OK for them at first, if uncomfortably tied. But also the lack of score here is wild and tense. There's just a lot going on in this scene. Yeah, his close-ups of their face uh, goes to Cecilia, and it look the look on her face is like, oh shit, like this might be the end. It's just great acting there. Yeah, this is this is horrible. This is yeah. a horrible scene. <laughs> yeah, and he leaves a message for the police on their car, but the guy does survive. Now both times we've seen this happen, he's sloppy. Yeah, maybe he's not the genius that everybody says he is. Wow, imagine that. Hmm. Two weeks later, there is a curfew in place, and the call on the radio is someone saying they're not scared because he's only killing dirty hippie farm kids and people who deserve it, a reaction that is crystallized in the movie Dirty Harry, uh, emblematic of an older generation scared of their changing world and their kids who resent them. This is something that comes into play in the movie itself, and we see because it's based uh, on Toski here. But the movie itself, I did revisit it uh, in this uh, watching, in my preparation here. And, you know, it's it's kind of it's hard to put yourself back in the shoes of that time where they kind of needed catharsis and they're not getting it in real life. And so they say, okay, well, then we'll get it in the movies. And that has a negative impact on the case because now people don't care about it as much because they got that catharsis. But it is interesting that that was something that people were demanding because of the terror that they were in the whole, like just stagnating in a little slice of comfort. Exactly. Exactly. And Dave Tosky's shaking his head at you right now, George. (laughs) (laughs) I know he is. I see it. I see him there. The Zodiac kills the driver once they get a little distance. This crane out of it is really great. After this driving shot that you mentioned where there's the bird's eye view following the cab that the Zodiac gets into. You know, you feel this detachment along with the feeling of being locked onto it without the power to stop it. It's it's a very interesting blend of emotions here. Um, and then, yeah, followed up by this great crane out. And it's a change in pattern. You know, it's a wealthy area. They think that this is a botched robbery. This is kind of what makes it a challenge for them is that he's not following a set pattern anymore. And Toski is woken up by his partner calling about the shooting. 
It is funny about the lamp breaking. And you also see immediately the effect the killing is having on people as Toski's partner is musing on things he hasn't gotten to do because anyone could be killed at any time, it feels like. Yeah, I think um, Lake Berryessa and Paul Stein are really Zodiac's diva coming out, if you want to say that. He knew that the media was paying attention now, so he's. I think that was maybe his way of changing it up, getting yeah. a little more personal with the knife attack, going back to San Francisco, a bigger city, more people. So Yeah. You can also see how messy things were on their end as well, with misinformation about the suspect being black going out over the radio. They try to figure out his thinking, but can't, and the kids who saw him just describe him as normal, which is terrifying, like, to see that this is the description. Like, how can you find someone who just blends in like that? Yeah, I think they said that Oh, I think when he was drunk and just fighting with the cabbie. Yeah. And yeah, there is some, some say they were on the basement level, the kids were, and some say they were up top. So misinformation stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The Chronicle gets another letter three days later claiming responsibility and reveals why the Zodiac got into the front seat to claim a piece of the bloodstained shirt now in the letter. This letter also threatens to pick off a school bus full of kids as they come out, as mentioned in Fincher's story from before. Yeah. And this is where it goes apeshit. Because once you get the kids in there, kids are dogs. You know how it is. Yeah. I think if he would have said dogs, it would have been worse. Sure. (laughs) I'm just going to go to the dog park and start (laughs) shooting at dogs running around. Oh, hell no. You're not. Hell no, Zodiac. (laughs) Get that shit out of here. He would have been caught in two days. (laughs) It is funny when Graysmith is all impressed by Toski, and he's like, he wears his gun like bullet. And then, uh, of course, Paul says, McQueen got that from Toski. I was wondering about that. Did McQueen just, like, see him walking out of a building? I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. (laughs) Does anybody have any research on how he did, like... I think I think in the new Tarantino book he talks about it a little bit. Okay. I uh, don't remember the specifics, otherwise I would just say them here, right on, and I would make it easy for everybody. But I don't remember the specifics, so I'll say check out Cinema Speculation by Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> he also says that they got a partial print in blood from the cab, but the editor says this is confidential. Just go about your daily business. Which I mean, it just seems crazy to say. Like, how can you and It's part of what makes this movie so timely, I think, because that's literally the state that we're in at all times, it feels like, is like just waiting for someone to open fire on us. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is in the the late 60s. This was terrifying to parents. I mean, hell, we're in the same mindset nowadays. I mean. Exactly. And and it feels as crazy to say now, just go about your business. <laughs> like if it happens, it happens. What the fuck is that? Like I'll put out a video later, duck and cover, you'll be all right. Right. And you get these great scenes of like Graysmith almost letting his son take the bus and then pulling him back and driving with him. And later that night the kid the kids overhear the threat on the news, which Robert hurriedly shuts off, and you see sort of the way that they're trying to prevent this from from impacting kids. But how can you really? Yeah, I think Vanderbilt's commentary, he was like, I don't ever believe that Robert Graysmith got up and turned the TV <laughs> off. Like, <laughs> there was no way. <laughs> yeah. Toski is slammed with tips and can't actually do any investigating, and the chief can't give him any more people. It's you and Bill and Monday's a school day. 
which great line. <laughs> yeah. This movie is funny, guys, like through the whole thing. It yeah. really is. Definitely. It's, it's almost like, man, this is so it just flows, man. It really does. It does. And it's necessary to making it feel like real people because people are funny. People joke in their day to day life. And it's not always like like stand up jokes, but these little like funny witticisms more like that uh, that kind of just make themselves uh, naturally known. I mean, Fincher putting Shorty in the Chronicle, selling his coffee delicious as hell. Like that just is <laughs> something that. All right, yeah, that's normal. Okay, I could, I, I got it. <laughs> I'd buy coffee from that guy every day. That's right. The witness has also left town, but they finally get a little clue as they attempt to coordinate with the other PDs. The guy bought military surplus boots, which you need a military ID for, so that might help narrow things down. They don't have fax machines yet, though, like we said, so the handwriting samples and the boot print photo have to go through the mail. Yeah, once again, (laughs) a great job of showing. A lot of people claim that, oh, Zodiac was a mastermind. He went above county lines in this county and that to do all this confusion. I don't don't think that's it. I think it was just coincidence for him. Yeah. A sheriff's department and 20 miles up from San Francisco is considered the sticks. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Two days later, the news is literally everywhere. Toski and Bill mirror Paul and Robert, each trying to see through the patterns and then realizing that he's breaking them on purpose. Another two days, we're in late October now, and the Zodiac calls into a televised show to talk to Melvin Belli, an attorney played by Brian Cox. Very funny on the way there when he's lying in the backseat scared. You get this great, slightly off-kilter angle as they pull into the station mobbed by the press. Are these windows bulletproof? Yes, Melvin. <laughs> he doesn't even flinch. Yes. They need 15 minutes to trace the call. They do the setup. Then it cuts to a slinky commercial, which is gross. And this is another, I think, funny games moment, which th- there's this commoditization of violence that uh, that's happening here. And David clearly feels that it's gross, but it's all gross. You know, the Zodiac is using the press to feed his hunger for attention. The world is fascinated by a killer. Everything going on so far is absolutely sick. And it's crazy for them to be like, nobody call in right now. (laughs) (laughs) They just had to trust. They just had to trust that they wouldn't. And you cut back to the studio and they're just like banally talking about the Star Trek episode that Melvin was on. And the children shall lead. It's just like a really crazy cognitive dissonance whiplash. Yeah, I think the Vanderbilt commentary said to look at the picture of his guest appearance on Star Trek. Like, it's crazy. (laughs) I was like, I need to look that up. A buddy of mine is into Star Trek, and he was like, it is a fucking terrible episode. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. The call comes in, there's heavy breathing, and he finally says this is the Zodiac speaking. There's a really great shot of the cameramen looking at each other like, oh, it's him! Like, it's a really funny moment. And uh, he says, you can call him Sam. He has headaches, he says, but he doesn't get them when he kills. He doesn't want to go to the gas chamber. He has blackouts and screams from the pain. So uh, Robert turns it off since his son is in the room but not before Melvin gets the Zodiac to agree to a meeting. The problem is, the witness from the stabbing, Mike Majot, comes in to listen and says, no, that's not him. Or no, it wasn't Mike Majot, it was the other guy, right? 
Brian Hartnell, yeah. Right, right. So he comes in to listen and he says, that's not him. And the direct trace uh, led back to a mental institution after their meeting saw a no-show. So it wasn't even wasn't even him. Yeah, they investigated the caller for a little bit and then they finally cleared him. Yeah. Like you just get straight phone calls from mental institution? <laughs> I guess so. He, he put in a court. It's funny for him to be like, oh, I have a great idea for a prank. <laughs> so I, know like I, heard. <laughs> I know what I'm doing on Tuesday night. Everybody <laughs> shut up. <laughs> shh, 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 shh. <laughs> They're just like laughing in the background the whole time. <laughs> Two and a half weeks later, the Chronicle got another letter, this one much more taunting and directly addressing the cops with another cipher and a bomb recipe. And since Robert predicted that there would be another cipher, Paul says we should get a drink. I think this was about the time, too, that the newspapers were like, yeah, maybe we should uh, pump the brakes on printing this. Robert opens up a bit. He loves to read and he enjoys books. Another very funny line. He says that's the same thing. (laughs) He also drinks an Aqua Velva, which Paul tasting it, then cutting to them having a full line of empties is also very, very funny. Always a great movie moment. (laughs) They also break down the case, which Robert is beginning to look a little unhinged based on the stuff that he's carrying around with him, if admittedly very knowledgeable. This is where Paul asks, what's your angle? This is good business for everyone but you. And and yeah, he, he's just obsessed. He, he's just falling down the rabbit hole. Yeah, I think Paul even mentions like, why are you digging through my trash? Right. <laughs> okay, we'll come back to that, he says. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Toski calls Bill because he realized in one of the letters the Zodiac refers to his basement. Not many basements in California, Dave says. And this is where, like, the procedural elements are like, oh, fuck yeah. (laughs) Of course, he made the connection. Well, even as a viewer, you're like, is that true? And then you start thinking about all that shit. Yeah. Yeah. There it is. One and a half months later, though, still nothing. Melvin got a letter from the Zodiac a little after Christmas, and he calls both the Chronicle and the cops, and apparently Zodiac also tried calling several times while Melvin was on Christmas Safari. <laughs> there's there's a joke in the director's cut that's not in the main version, but I think is very, very funny, and also, I think, important to Melvin's character is this, like, liberal racism rug pull from Melvin, where it's uh, indicative of his well-meaning inefficacy in the Zodiac response as well, when when he's like, oh, it's a great place, savages. savages. You're like, oh, oh boy, this yeah, guy. Toski has to get him back on subject. Right. But yeah, they did say that he pretty much had a party that night so he could show everybody the letter and read it to the, the investigators that were coming over. So that shows you another, like, this dude's a nut job. <laughs> He called to be like, oh, there's a sniper across the across the street. And then they realized that they had uh, like after he was just introducing them to people at the dinner party, they were like, oh, this is to show how responsive the police were to him and how important he was. And just leveraging again, leveraging this sick, sick stuff that was happening for his own gain. Well, this is a potential client as well. So sure, sure. You know, hey. Some do say that this was Zodiac reaching out just in case he ever did get caught. So Yeah, could be. Could, could be. be, yeah. Two and a half months later, it's late March 1970 on Highway 132 near Modesto. Uh, very interesting moment in the commentary where Fincher was talking about he doesn't actually believe the following was associated with Zodiac, but he was convinced to include it 
because it marked the next step in Zodiac's evolution. And plus, he wanted to hold kind of a neutral stance and not be like, oh, I don't think that this is the Zodiac, so I'm just going to cut it out. It was it was treated as part of the Zodiac case, so he included it. Yeah, this was my, being the Zodiac nerd, this was my biggest question mark here, and I was dying to know the commentary on this scene. And yeah, he just kind of, he's like, yeah, I don't believe it. Uh, I talked to a guy, and he had a really good argument about it, so I put it in there. And I was yeah. like, oh, that's it? Like... <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> like, I'm a, with my pen and paper, like looking like Robert Graceman trying to. Because, yeah, a lot of people, especially now, are like, we don't think that John's had it. We don't think it was Zodiac. There you go. But it is a scary scene as this woman pulls oh, over yeah. after getting honked and high beamed, and the guy approaches to say, Hey, your wheel is loose. Want me to tighten the lug nuts? And she agrees with some trepidation, watches him in the mirror. And, oh, it seems like he might actually be loosening them, doesn't it? And, oh, dear, there's a little baby in the car, too, isn't there? And she was also pregnant at the time as well. So Damn, didn't know that. And she drives away, and, of course, the wheel immediately falls off. <laughs> rut row raggy. <laughs> and he reverses and says, oh, it must have been worse than I thought. I'll give you a lift. She no, ag- I'd be like, dude, get the fuck out of here. Let me <laughs> fuck my shit up, bro. Like, no. Yeah, this, again, she is trepidatious, but she does agree again, which feels crazy. Yeah. He does react a little negatively when she reveals the baby to him, though ultimately he says, the more the merrier. And they drive past the filling station, and he says, it was closed. And then he says, when I'm done with them, they don't need much help. And casually drops a, before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window. This went on for almost two hours from the reports. I don't know if they mentioned that in the the movie. No, I don't think that they did. Yeah. And even if it's not Zodiac, that's fucking crazy. (laughs) It cuts to a little later, and she did jump from the car with the baby and survived, which is good news. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, also a very digital scene, which doesn't look it. Very, very uh, well-layered-in composite there. Yeah, I think that semi-truck was never even there. Right, (laughs) right. And this is front page news, and things continue to heat up via a fun montage of the Chronicle becoming the clearinghouse for Zodiac Communications, four letters in three months, with claims of responsibility, threats, and more ciphers. And the cops want the Chronicle to stop publishing them and see how he reacts, because they think that he's faking, just taking credit because he wants the press. And they already had someone in custody for a recent cop slaying, and apparently he's even stolen the reticule symbol from a watch company. So now that they can really only verify five kills, they're pulling some resources. Yeah, this is Paul kind of coming to the realization that uh, this guy's just a shitbag. And it's at this point that he gets a Halloween card from Zodiac with another bloody shirt piece, and the Zodiac is coming for him. The I am not Paul Avery buttons are amusing in a terrifying implications kind of way. Uh, very funny also that he's wearing one. Yeah, what a s- sick joke to pull at your office. Like, you couldn't do that today. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and he fires away one-handed at a cutout in the shooting range. Robert Downey Jr. is really, he's doing a great job in this damn role. <laughs> and if he ever shooting at you, just stand still because he's a terrible <laughs> shot. He sure was. Robert arrives late to a date with Melanie, uh, played by Chloe Savini, who looks very, very hot, and she raises the possibility that this anonymous tipster that Paul is going to meet 
could be the Zodiac ambushing him. And as that sinks in, Robert becomes more and more frantic looking for the change to call Paul's wife. It is a great scene, and all huddled together in the phone booth there, they agree to go back to his place to wait for the call. I'll get Just the great food stuff. to go. Yeah. Oh, great line. Great scene. Just a very, very fun dynamic, like I said. Yeah. I don't know why people don't like that. Come on. It's crazy. Accept love, people. <laughs> As the sun finally rises with Melanie waking up and Robert still wired, he finally gets a call from Paul, who reveals to him and then the news that the unsolved murder of a girl in Riverside was the Zodiac's first victim, with the letters to the press from that killer matching the handwriting of the Zodiac. And the police are pissed that he didn't tell them first. How do we know this is real? It's very real. You know how I know? I saw it on TV. Well, yeah, I mean, duh. Read it on the internet. Again, the moments from the 70s that still feel very topical, very timely, the things that uh, even in 2007 have exacerbated and, and, and become more and more pressing issues. It's, it's wild. So the more things change, the more they stay the same, you know? Yeah, going through research for this, I'm like, oh, seven. I'm like, all right, I remember going to the movie. I'm like, holy shit, this is almost 16 years old. Jeez. Oh, goodness gracious. Whew. The police go to check it out, and it seems to do just that for Toski, uh, although the rest of the cops aren't so sure. Paul and Toski argue outside as well, and the new evidence gets written up by Paul, bringing the crazies out of the wood with quote-unquote tips. Yeah, I think Fincher and Vanderbilt do say that Toski and them did not think Riverside was related. Eight months later, it's late July 1971, and finally one of the tips seems to hold a little water, prompted by the Avery article, which has got a sting for Toski. (laughs) But this Science Dynamics Corps medical information systems guy, his story is spooky, reminiscent of what we've seen, but still not fully formed, I I thought was interesting. It very much feels like a story of someone getting their legs. And you gotta laugh when he's like, I thought Zodiac was a stupid name, and I told him that. And he got all pissed and was like, I thought about it for a long time. (laughs) This is my creation, leave me alone. (laughs) And now number one suspect is Arthur Lee Allen, who goes by Lee. And as they investigate, this guy seems more and more likely. He was fired from a school for molesting children, and they've gotten some handwriting samples which don't match enough to rule him out, but also aren't enough to rule him in. So it's a tenuous situation there. Hey, 1960s America, let's get some stronger laws against child molestation at this time, please. (laughs) Please. Someone that Bill calls, however, reveals two more suspicious clues. Lee, in addition to being creepy, liked to misspell words as a joke, and is ambidextrous, so he could write well enough with his alternate hand to throw things off. Toski and Bill go to interrogate Arthur Lee Allen, who, I mean, this performance is just so fucking good. John Carroll Lynch, absolutely fucking incredible in this. Keeping you off balance and kind of changing his characterization in moment to moment, almost, it feels like. With the interview of Bill Armstrong for the movie, the this is the exact dialogue that happened during this investigation. Uh, he provided it all for him. So that's how Fincher got it. So that's fucking crazy. And John Carroll Lynch has played Jake Gyllenhaal's father in two other movies. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's right. First one in Bubble Boy. Yeah. Bubble Boy. he said that it wasn't really an impression though which i thought was interesting he had the same dialogue but that he was kind of bringing his own his own thing to uh to the characterization there 
And he reveals that he had some bloody knives after returning from the lake, to which his neighbor must have seen. And he assumes that this is what it's about, that his neighbor called in these bloody knives. Straight out, like like the second thing he says. (laughs) Hey, damn, bro. And it's, it's so suspicious. And you're like, oh, this is like... If you've spent all this time thinking of a lie and now you're like, oh, I need to get it out there so that we can build on it. And it's like, well, they didn't ask you about it, dude. You're hanging yourself with your own rope here. Yeah. They pressure him a bit and the act kind of drops a bit. And he says, I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you, which is very funny. Smart on his part. True. True. He is wearing a Zodiac watch as well and says, oh, the most dangerous game was my favorite book in high school. Before dipping out to go back to work. He really, like, he is hitting all the check marks. Everything that they know about this guy. He's like, yeah, that's, I love that shit. The great acting coming from all three of these guys whenever he takes off that watch to show them. Oh, uh, yeah. It's like, it's so great. The close-ups and the way it's edited, the reaction shots that work to tell the story quickly and silently between the cops is really, really impressive. It's Finchy, baby. That's Finchy. They also talk with um, Arthur Lee Allen's brother, who, along with his wife, says, hey, I believe it. That's not what you want. (laughs) Even if you're not the Zodiac, you should never want to be in a place where your siblings are like, I believe that they're the Zodiac. My fucking sister-in-law, man. She's really after me. Jeez. (laughs) I knew she didn't like me, but damn. No respect. (laughs) Oh, yeah. She's ready to sell his ass out in a quick minute. (laughs) The problem is that the handwriting expert says that they don't match the samples and they can't get a warrant without a match, but they can't get evidence without searching. So the chief says, get to investigating the other 2,300 suspects. (sighs) Fuck. Paul has continued to degenerate into alcoholism as the days move on, communicated in a fun time lapse of a skyscraper being constructed. One year later, he's in bad shape and on his last legs at the newspaper. Toski gets a new handwriting expert to say it could be an ambidextrous person's other hand as a match, especially with the personality change that comes with his uh, becoming the Zodiac. Plus, Lee has a trailer he's been living in in another county that will let the cops circumvent the Vallejo DA's office going through the Santa Rosa jurisdiction. And it's funny how effective these moments are that we're like, yeah, fuck due process. (laughs) Just fuck, you don't need it. It's the same thing with Rear Window. They're like, oh, we need a search warrant to go over there. And and he's like, search warrants are for fucking idiots. <laughs> Let's just get over there, man. Rip. Nope. <laughs> but a lot of things line up. So they get this warrant for uh, for this trailer. They enter and a neighbor says that he tore out of there 30 minutes ago. So they bunker down for a bit until he gets there, which the trailer contains such hits as some matching articles of clothing, several guns squirrels both living and dead in the freezer an open jar of lube and what can only be described as a poopy wood dildo it is a wooden dildo according to bill armstrong that was the world's largest jar of vaseline he said that was his quote from the real bill armstrong (laughs) (laughs) and uh give it up for fencher for allowing live squirrels on set wow (laughs) how did he control them (laughs) <laughs> they just threw him into the damn uh, <laughs> into the trailer and said, all right, Ruffalo, get in there. <laughs> the problem is the ballistics don't match the guns that are in the trailer. The writing is still no match. The prints are no match. It's unbelievable. It really feels insane that it isn't just immediately lining up to be this guy. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, the physical evidence is not there for Mr. Lee yeah, Allen. That's right. That's all we can say. That's right. The chief gives Toski some time off. Hey, go see a movie. So he does. And what's playing but Dirty Harry? Robert and Melanie are there, too. And Robert introduces himself to Dave after the movie lets out. They just talked in the commentary about the way that this led to less resources being devoted because they got this placebo closure. It's really, really interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's the public wants that comfort, man. Yeah, yeah. And they want it done by Clint Eastwood. (laughs) I uh, will say that my first time watching it, I didn't really have a lot of recollection of it besides just bristling at the nature of the movie of this guy working outside the law to be like, I know who needs to be punished. But- it was interesting because now having seen funny games and and had people be like, oh, movies are so dangerous, I kind of came back to it with a more like relaxed vibe about it. And I was like, it's just a movie, you know, like it's yeah. it's it's a, a propulsive, interesting, well-performed movie. And even though it has fascistic tendencies, it is that reactionary kind of thing. It's 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 what the times were demanding in, in a way. Yeah, I've yet to see Dirty Harry. I know it's wow. I know it's connected, but yeah, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. But a few radio announcements of major events bring us forward in time for years. Pretty wild to have a purely audio montage. And they talked about how funny it was to spend all this money on the songs that they would need to play here and then have it be like just blank. completely blank screen. <laughs> I think they talked about the Transamerica building as well, how much that cost. And yeah. they wanted to cut it at one point. And he was like, the <laughs> fuck we are. <laughs> you know how much money we spent on that thing? <laughs> That's right. Uh, it also changes from mono to stereo, which I thought was pretty interesting. Adam Goldberg joins the movie as Duffy Jennings, a new writer at the Chronicle, replacing Paul Avery. Bill also reveals that he's transferring to fraud so that he can see his kids grow up. And Robert is now married to Melanie with a new baby. Yeah, this is uh, Fincher said that Zodiac goes silent for four years and we're going to fill that and we're going to follow our characters still, even though you got nothing there going on. Exactly. And they do a great job with it. And he's flipping through his scrapbook of Zodiac clippings and Robert gets an idea off Melanie saying no one has more Zodiac stuff than you do. So he goes to the docks to see Paul who is gray as hell before his time from the stress, and suggests that they write a book because compiling info might jog something loose. Paul is hurting, though, and he doesn't want to go back into that trauma, although he plays it off like he simply doesn't care, which I think is interesting. That they're, they're, you know, Fincher, I already talked about how he mentioned that there is this realism that Paul Avery has, but also I think it's very clear that this has been a traumatic experience for him, and now that things have quieted down, why would he want to stir that back up? It, it didn't affect Graysmith in the same way that it affected Avery, clearly. I Paul is very rude here. Mm, that and is maybe true. maybe if Robert would have came with cha-ching, cha-ching, bro, like <laughs> maybe this is going to make some money. Maybe he would have been on board. But for everybody that thinks that Robert Downey Jr.'s Phoenix rose whenever he became Iron Man, you need to watch Zodiac because mm-hmm. this is the beginning. Actually, I would maybe say kiss, kiss, bang, bang. But. Yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> but this is even escalating that. He's got less screen time and does amazing work in this. I, I'm voting so. for Zodiac, George. All right, all right. Although I love Kiss, Clank, Kiss Clank. Bang Bang. 
the court finds in favor of Zodiac. Yes. <laughs> it's now October 11th, 1977. Toski is watching the corner of Washington and Cherry where the cab shooting took place, taking off right as Graysmith gets out of a cab at the same corner. And Robert buys some lunch so that they can talk. Fincher said that Ruffalo had about four bites of about 74 different burgers. <laughs> and then during the other commentary, James Elroy dismissed the challenge with, eh, he's Italian. Italians love their chow. And it just, I had to pause the movie so I could laugh and not miss more of what they were saying. <laughs> I read your letterbox review as a, as I got to, like five minutes after that, I got to that part. <laughs> There's also one where he's like, oh, I spilt that coffee 28 times. I was like, <laughs> god damn it. <laughs> oh, man. It's a very, very funny moment. But Toski hits Graysmith with all the classic lines. We're actively pursuing all leads. We don't discuss open cases. Yes, I'm the only cop on the case. Graysmith has a new clue, though, about someone having stolen the books on codes needed to form the first cipher from some army bases. And Toski pointedly can't tell him anything, especially about going to see Ken Narlow in Napa, which, again, makes you laugh. Which is so crazy of what if it came down to finding the Zodiac because of the library books that he checked out. Incredible. <laughs> hey, like, it, you think about that. <laughs> it, having fun uh, ain't hard when you have a library card. That's, that's true. <laughs> but it's crazy that maybe, no. I mean, I'm sure maybe they thought about that. Somebody had to, right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe they didn't. Maybe not. You know, they're busy boys. Just the two of them there. And it is this great transition as we get the bird's eye view from the top of the Golden Gate Bridge, looking down at the cars, and Narlo sends him to Vallejo, but Robert is allowed to go through the evidence boxes. Really great line where they say, you don't smoke, do you? And Jake goes once in high school. <laughs> <laughs> the, there's a great running joke, too, about him being an Eagle Scout, like the whole movie as well. It's just fucking hilarious yeah oh, he's definitely. a fucking eagle scout <laughs> uh, i think jake said that he improvised that right the once in high school uh, yeah 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 <laughs> funny guy he has to remember everything in his head though no writing anything down or photos or anything and you get this great montage uh, as he rushes out to dinner where he can scribble down a few scraps of info on a napkin yeah and if anybody who's interested in this they would so love that would just be so much fun mm-hmm. ah Let's go through all that old shit. <laughs> he meets with Toski, or rather he doesn't meet with him. And Graysmith leads him to the idea that one woman, Darlene, was killed on purpose and gets sent towards Melvin Belli to discuss the phone calls that they got. While he's waiting for Melvin, though, Robert talks to the housekeeper who casually discusses the calls that she fielded while Melvin was on safari. The Zodiac said he had to kill because it was his birthday. What the? Oh, shit. <laughs> None of the suspects had the same birthday, according to Mel at the Justice Department. Stick to the evidence, he suggests. Fingerprints and handwriting. That's where it's at. That's right. That night, Melanie passes along confirmation of an appointment with the handwriting expert on the case tomorrow, but is pissed at Robert for discussing his book in an article, now putting the target on them. Especially when they get a call saying the Zodiac is obsessed with movies and to check out Bob Vaughn, a friend of the Zodiac whose real name is Rick Marshall, and Bob is hiding some filmed evidence for him. And the fact that Graysmith is now getting calls from random people saying, go check this out, go check out this guy who is the killer. You can see why that might not be the most uh, delightful thing for his wife to get. 
Well, and it seems like he doesn't have two thoughts about it. He's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go meet this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Meeting with the handwriting specialist, Robert gets a little lesson in how they cleared suspects using handwriting. Then the expert says, by the way, some guy told me Rick something was the Zodiac, and I never cleared anybody by that name. So things are lining up now with this uh, secondary tip. And we're building up again. Here we go. That's right. That's right. And Robert gets another call that night. Just some heavy breathing. The hallmark of the Zodiac. He lies to Chloe, saying it was a a, a wrong number. And after some encouragement from Narlo and Napa, Robert is fully on the trail of Rick, getting some posters he drew for the theater he worked at to compare for handwriting. Which the expert says he needs more, but this is the closest he's ever seen. (sighs) Edge of your seat. That's right. April 25th, 1978. We're coming up on nine years now. And there's a new Zodiac letter at the Chronicle that mentions Toski, who is now being looked into by Internal Affairs, because they think Toski forged it and kicked him off homicide. Which, uh, as we'll find out later, he was cleared of this accusation of forgery, but uh, they thought that it might have been him at the time, because he wrote these fan letters anonymously, trying to keep himself in the public eye a little bit. Yeah, he was trying to get a little more uh, star power there. He was kind of fading a little bit, but yeah. I think this was... He took it pretty hard from from what I've read, so yeah, getting kicked off a homicide. So can't can't blame him. When Graysmith goes to talk with Toski, however, things are looking grim because Toski is pissed and also reveals that Sherwood, the handwriting expert, was fired from the force and drinks like Paul Avery now. Give up, he tells Robert. The obsession is strong, though. Robert has now roped his children in on their special project, <laughs> and apparently, he and Melanie are no longer sleeping in the same bed. Now in August, we check in with Paul Avery, lounging at a bar, smoking next to his oxygen tank, which seems dangerous. So awesome. (laughs) (laughs) But we see Robert on TV, having cracked a new cipher, but this pisses off Melanie even more, paranoid, understandably, about their safety and the calls that they've been getting. Uninterested that Robert has found another lead, a woman in jail who might know something. Avery. The fucking library. (laughs) (laughs) Graysmith doesn't want to discuss her anger right now because he's going out to meet Robert Vaughn, who uh, invited him over to his house. This is probably the scariest scene in the movie because as Graysmith questions him about Rick Marshall, it starts to seem like maybe Vaughn might be a person of interest himself, especially when, among other eerie reveals, he says he is the one who drew the posters that they linked to the writing and that he has a basement just like the Zodiac. Coming, Mr. Graysmith? Ah! Graysmith was here for whenever they shot all this, and they were kind of going over everything, and he said Venture turned to him and was like, why the fuck would you go into the basement of a guy <laughs> that might be related to the Zodiac killer? Yeah. He's like, I, I didn't want to be mean to the guy. <laughs> And that's one thing about Graysmith that they say. He's so nice to everybody. He thanks everybody. He's always very Even respectful. if he does something for them. Yeah, even as Avery was yelling at him on the the houseboat, he's like, I'm sorry to bother you. I'm sorry. Thank you. Like, Yeah. But yeah, he's like, I, I didn't want to be mean to the guy. Right. <laughs> we also have talked a lot about the sound design, but we haven't really talked too much about the lighting in this movie, which the heavy use of shadows across the entirety of the movie has been great covering up the Zodiac in the moments of the killings. And here, Vaughn himself moves into the shadows in a really great and ominous way as he asks, do you think he saw the movie in our theater and was inspired? 
it's just fucking great. Charles Fleischer knocks it out of the park in this scene. Yeah, super fucking creepy. And I think he knows. I think he's fucking with him a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Robert practically sprints out, but the door is locked. And Vaughn (laughs) does let him out. It's you're like, I cannot believe that he's letting him out. This movie does such a great job of making you be positive every time that it's that guy. Like, oh, when they go to uh, to Arthur Lee Allen's trailer, it, how could it not be this guy? When he's walking around and he can't get out of this house, how could it not be this guy? And that surety of these random people, only one of them could be the Zodiac. Well, I guess not. that's not true. But th- one of them theoretically is the Zodiac, which means the other one theoretically is not the Zodiac. But just like people at the time, people exposed to the case, you develop your own theories, you develop your own passion for which one you think is correct, and uh, they just really communicate it in a very effective way. Yeah, and I think I think this coming at this point in the film is wonderful as well because you kind of for, you're already kind of forgetting about Arthur Lee Allen, and then you got okay, we got another guy, we're on the scent of another one. All right, all right. That's right. So I think that flow works very well. Yeah. Good night, Mr. Graysmith, he calls out knowingly. Very spooky. Graysmith finds his own home empty, though. Took the kids to mom. Don't call. Is written on the back of the note about Linda Farron having changed her name to Linda Del Buono. And now having lost everything in the pursuit, he's too far gone to give up now. And he goes to visit her as well to ask about the painting party. This was another slight change for the movie. They said that this uh, took place over a phone call, they thought. But that wouldn't be very cinematic. <laughs> so. It's a movie they got to bend for the magic. I think uh, with Paul Avery, too, they did add him a little more into the newsrooms and stuff That's like right. that and the meetings to for yeah. the story to push sure. through. So nothing, nothing that really changes anything. Nah, I'm not I'm not mad at it. Yeah, this is another amazing scene. Clea Duvall is great as Linda. And when you see his desperation for it to be Rick. Like, he's getting more and more worked up, and she's, Linda is sure that it wasn't, no, it was Lee. Yeah, this is kind of the first time you see Graysmith kind of almost unhinge a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he can't take it being, uh, dropping out from under him after he feels he's so close to it. Yeah. He hustles over to Vallejo in the dead of the night to burst in and see a file, which is funny, but the file corroborates her naming of Lee. They don't care, though. And he is still getting the breathing calls. Melanie arrives with some files and Robert reveals he's no longer at the Chronicle. Easy to see why, as he is completely unhinged among his boxes and boxes of paper there. And when he looks at them, the, the top one is a photocopy of Arthur Lee Allen's driver's license. And he runs over to Toski's house in the middle of the night. Yeah, which is great on her. She didn't have to give him that. Right. But she knows, like, he's got to get through this if anything's... Uh, on the other end right right you got to see it through dave doesn't want to hear anything until robert drops the name the birthday matched the call and the name matches the testimony and toski shows him a taunting letter that alan typed him after he got out of jail for another case of molestation nothing illegal about using a typewriter the only guy to contact him ever out of all the suspects right and they look at the timelines and one thing crystallizes the letters stopped when Alan went back to jail. He's also geographically in the same places as the crimes, 
but the prints in the handwriting, they can't prove it. Finish the book, Toski tells him, and thank you. And he finally gets some closure. This feels like at least confirmation to him that it's Arthur Lee Allen. And also closure for, for Robert here, as uh, that he gets the respect slash concurrence of the man that he looks up to as well. Yeah, I think they said even, they were like, Robert didn't even read the script. He only read the parts with Dave. Because <laughs> <laughs> there was one, I think with their name calling him, he asked, Robert Grace was asked, them to take that out which they didn't because they were like it's it's pretty funny <laughs> yeah and he admitted it afterward he did say yeah yeah, yeah, yeah it's it funny, yeah, it funny. <laughs> robert goes to the hardware store and he gets a look there's lee though his name tag is l-e-e mm-hmm. and there's a moment of recognition between the two of them which is very spooky seven and a half years later the book comes out and one of the policemen we saw at vallejo is promoted good for him and he meets with jimmy simpson the grown-up version of the su- shooting survivor mike Michaud who quickly and enthusiastically points out a picture of Lee in a photo lineup as the man who did it, at least an eight on the positive scale. And the hurdy-gurdy man kicks in as we're let out with some text. They went to charge Lee with the murders, and he had a fatal heart attack. That motherfucker. (laughs) Taking the easy way out. And interestingly, in 2002, a partial DNA profile was developed from a 33-year-old Zodiac envelope, which didn't match Alan, but they didn't rule him out on that. And in 2004, the SFPD deactivated their case, which does remain open in Napa County, Solano County, and Vallejo, where Lee is the prime and only suspect. Toski retired in 89, cleared of the letter forgery charges, like we said. Paul died in 2000 of emphysema. And Graysmith still lives in San Francisco, where he claims to have not received any more anonymous calls since Alan's death. There were a few, yeah, great, great ending. You know, I love a little text wrap up at the end there. You gotta know. (laughs) There were some case facts that were left out of the film that I thought were interesting, which that Arthur Lee Allen attended a college where a brutal murder happened on the football field and the administration got anonymous letters from the killer afterward. Lee Allen also got a speeding ticket near Lake Barriessa the night of the Vallejo murders, and he was 50 miles from his home. Impossible to say why he was going so fast, though. Yeah, there's so many little small details that, like I said, they do a great job of somebody mentioning that later on. I know at Lake Barriessa, uh, Brian Hartnell did crawl a very long time to try to get help. But of course they didn't show that in there. Right. Uh, And just, uh, there's so many things that, that they could have done. I mean, but yeah, man, otherwise we'd have a five hour movie, which, which would be awesome, but, (laughs) (laughs) but it would have been even more of a flop then presumably. uh, (laughs) But we're here to talk about why it's not just a good horror movie, Dan. We've now reached the part of the episode where we sum up why it is the best horror movie ever made and i'm gonna let you start oh thank you george as always thanks for having me on such an honor of course this is the best horror movie ever made i'm gonna start with the killings like i said they're shocking they're realistic they're clinical they're also very respectful i think to the people involved and the victims involved lake Berryessa, to me is so terrifying the the choices that Fincher made to put to where to put his camera seems like you're almost you're kind of standing right in front of him to where you can almost 
like you could see him coming and just say, hey, get away from those people. Even with the first uh, shooting with Farron and Michael there, you could almost, if you pan over, you could see yourself in those headlights there because you're right there to be like, hey, get away from those kids because, you know, you just feel like you're right there. So I think that's very realistic and spooky as hell. Uh, Next up, not a lot of people have basements in California. I mean, some directors strive to make that their whole horror movie and Finchie comes in in six minutes and he's like, horror movie thrill ride right here dudes <laughs> like pfft, take it yeah this movie is a movie about process and procedures i've already said that it breaks you it makes you do the work with these guys and it's a movie of dead ends it shouldn't work this should not work at all right a, a pitch meeting they should have been like oh fuck no we're not doing this shit <laughs> but it works you go through the process with gray smith of the obsession and the way it takes over his life and destroys his life i mean in the end it worked out for him obviously bill armstrong and dave toski think about those guys they, they're cops but they never got their guy that's mm-hmm. got to have a mental ptsd effect on them later on in life next up this was real life these are actual people that got killed. There's police files that say it's real. This wasn't just made up for a movie to be entertaining. It's entertaining as hell, but it's also based on true facts. Like I said, for that time and that state, and even the media, how they covered this, the boogeyman was real out there for these people. And the best horror movie ending ever is he was never caught. He's still out there. He could be, you know, we don't know. There's millions of theories, but yeah, that's a great horror movie ending. Like, Oh shit. He really didn't die. So I think that's why it's the greatest horror movie ever made, man. It's so good. It's just so fun. I'm not fun, but it just really, if you're a person that loves the nitty gritty details and likes to get in there, this is for you. Check it out. Yeah, you raise a really interesting point in that it does, it is dead ends all the way down. And it's kind of the opposite of Dirty Harry in that it has no closure. This doesn't really give you something to be like, oh, I'm glad that it all worked out okay. <laughs> because they're like, it, it could have been Alan, it might not be. It is scary. But like I said, it is sort of the book for a new generation. It compiles the information in a way that makes it uh, digestible to to a new audience and everything. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is a really fascinating jewel in an already jewel-studded career from David Finchie Fincher. He is incredible, and so often part of what I love about his work is that the medium becomes the message and that his camera work embodies what you're seeing on screen as well. And this movie just like the case can be exhausting and interminable and the ups and downs of following this case are emotionally draining. And in that way, he brings this empathy with the investigators that you don't even know is happening. It's such a fascinating way to utilize, you know, Robert Ebert called uh, movies, empathy machines. This is, I think the most, demonstrable use case of that you are put in the shoes of these victims in a really really horrifying way and you're put in the shoes of the investigators in a similarly horrifying way and so for those two emotional horrors to be then combined with very impactful scary scenes 
of just like a movie, a scary movie when he's in the basement, when the actual stabbings are taking place. It's such a fine balancing act and, and he does it so well. And people, I, I would still consider this to be in like the sort of like post nine 11 era where people were really looking for escapist s- cinema. And this doesn't provide that sort of happy, easy ending. It's, it's like a Shakespearean tragedy almost like everybody's obsession leads to their downfall, not just Graysmith, but all three other men who became enamored with the attention that the case brings them. Paul Avery is already an alcoholic, which could be considered an obsession, but he also has a very public feud with the police and let's just say his own attention seeking behaviors. Dave Toskey already hot off bullet gets a movie where he's the unstoppable killer catcher, unafraid to break the rules in pursuit of justice. And then this fades. He doesn't get the man and he's brought to writing his own anonymous fan mail. And finally, the Zodiac himself obsessed with the fame and press the killings brought him along with who knows what else brought to his demise because he couldn't resist that. It's such a great way of, of showing the impact of obsession in its various forms. And the way that these ripple effects can impact other people as well. It's just such a fascinating time as well. The moon landing was like a week before. Chappaquiddick is around then. Woodstock. It was a it was a very busy time. Stones concert. Yeah. Yeah. And you sort of see, again, this, this topicality. You're overloaded with so much sensationalism that it's very easy to turn to apathy. And... I think that you see that as the case drags on, that the public becomes more apathetic and less resources are devoted to it because they don't get that closure and because it's been over-sensationalized. And that happens all the time now. And I think that this movie kind of serves as a really interesting warning against that. And it's it, for that reason alone, on top of, I mean, to say nothing of the incredible performances all the way down, every performance is done by an incredible actor. <laughs> like, you throw a stone, you'll hit the lead of another movie. And they just do such a great job. Fincher's direction is through the fucking roof in this one. It's just the best horror movie ever made. Damn right. <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> Dan, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. Please tell the people what you got going on, direct them to the podcast, all that jazz. All right. Yeah. You could find me on five day rentals. I'm over there with my other two movie misfits, BFF buddies, uh, Bones and Karan Howard. We are a non-genre category podcast. We pick a category and bring three films to it and take you through it in a comical and mostly informative way as much as we can. We get off the rails, but uh, it's a fun time. But yeah, we're on Twitter. Follow us there. We're on Instagram at Five Day Rentals and join the Discord. We're there uh, spitting shit every day, usually. That's where you can find us most. So, Hell yeah. yeah. Definitely check out Five Day Rentals. It's a lot of fun. Even the episodes I'm not on are a delight, but I am on an episode, so you can a great place to start. Why not? As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That username applies pretty much everywhere, including Instagram and Letterboxd and the Patreon. If you're really enjoying the show, there are all kinds of great bonus episodes over there, including, most recently, a very, very fun legal thriller 
where our very own Laundry Dan, as well as the other two five-day rentals boys, were the judges for the legal thriller. I actually got to be one of the combatants, the litigants, and uh, had a blast. And if you want to hear me arguing my correct opinions <laughs> on uh, on there, <laughs> then check out the Patreon along with all kinds of other bonus episodes, uh, like including just like highlights of other movies. We ranked our top treehouse of horrors episodes or bits like the segments from uh the first 10 seasons of the simpsons anything and everything over there video games we've talked about resident evil 2 the remake and the original all kinds of shit but more importantly i have a i have a fun plug today as well which is to say that we have our first open to the public live show happening may 4th in philadelphia at philomoca which is my personal favorite venue so i'm very excited about that we are going to be screening Tetsuo the Iron Man and then having a live podcast episode about it afterward. And I'm really excited. Special guest Paul Ritchie from Continue and Goosebuds will be there. It's going to be a really great time and uh, look forward to that. I'm very excited about it. All right. I think that's it. Thanks, everyone. Bye. <laughs>